This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, some housekeeping things. The tune at the beginning of this podcast, the license for it is about to expire. And so the question is, should we keep it? Should we replace it with something else? Um should we have a contest to see someone can come up with a better intro? Um, let us know in the comment section about all of these things. My experience tells me that most people are going to want it to stay. Let me put it this way. I'm going to mostly hear from people who want it to go and then we'll change it. And then I'll hear from 10 times more people who are pissed that it didn't stay. This is the nature of web redesigns. This is the nature of any big change on the web. You don't hear from the, the silent majority until they're annoyed with change. But you hear from the vocal minority um, up front and you, mis you can misread you know, the market signal on it. Also, uh, keep your suggestions for um, remnant or dispatch swag coming. We've gotten some really good ones. I particularly want to get a bunch of kind of sticker things that people can be generous and sort of doing kind of freelance marketing with and putting around in various places. But, um, you know, uh, and also if you have ideas for like G file related swag, I mean, this is, this is the moment where, um, the suits, which I have to confess I'm one of, um, are willing to open our wallets to start, um, doing something fun. And, um, so if you have fun ideas now is the time, or if you're in the business now is the time, to share them. Um, and, uh, oh, and I got to do this other thing. Uh, the good people at AEI, where I am a scholar and have been part of the family for a very long time and want to stay that way for a very long time, uh, they asked if they could run an ad for the summer honors program at AEI. And I was like, look, I'd be happy um, to plug um, Summer Honors because I think it's a fantastic program. But 
there's a kind of moral hazard in running ads for free on the podcast. Um, so instead I'm just going to talk to you about it. Um, uh, the AI summer honors program is great. I've never met a kid who's done it that hasn't been incredibly glad to have done it. Um, it takes place in Washington, DC this June. Uh, it's an annual program. It's an all expense paid experience for undergraduate students to come to DC from universities across the nation and the world for a week in June where they learn from top public policy experts. You'll probably hear from me at the thing. Some of the courses AI offers this year will cover the changing nature of warfare taught by AI's Corey Shockey, who's awesome. Um, Stuff about polarization and pluralism uh, taught by dispatch senior editor turned New York Times columnist David French. I didn't know David was doing that. Interesting. And the foundations of democratic capitalism taught by uh, Michael Strain, who's often on here. And if you do the summer's honor, honor thing, do your homework about why you want to criticize Bruce Springsteen and you will get uh, a lot of reward from it. In addition to the seminars, students will also have the opportunity to connect and network with other students, young professionals, and experts from across the political spectrum and public policy world. If you're a current college student or you know someone who is and may be interested, head over to AEI.org or Google AEI Summer Honors to learn more. Applications are due March 1, 2023. That's March 1, 2023. Yeah, okay, so I, I was reading this you know general copy that they wanted me to read from, and that's fine. But I'll just put my own plug in. It's a great thing to do. It really is. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, if you have, um, you know, uh, um, it, it does it actually doesn't cost you a lot of money. So it's not just for kids with a lot of resources, although I understand that some people have to work in the summer. But it's a week in June. Um, AI is full of young, smart people um, that time of year. Uh, and it's a it's a great program. And. I'm not saying it definitely puts you on a short list for internships and jobs at AI and around Washington, but I can tell you this, it doesn't hurt. Um, and, um, um, and so I highly recommend it. And, uh, you know, and you might even see people like me and uh, Chris Starwalt eating um, in the lunchroom, which is not necessarily a pleasant sight, but it's fun to be able to say you saw it. Um, so uh, again, uh, Summer Honors Program, AEI, Deadlines, March 1. Check it out uh, and um, tell them Jonah sent you. Uh, so I'm home. I got home yesterday from what happened this week. Oh, so on Monday, I went up to New York to do uh, a CNN hit. And then Tuesday, I did the Dalibor podcast. Um, and then got on a plane to Fort Lauderdale where I did a, um, a paid talk. Actually, it's the, it's the one paid talk I do. Um, I don't want to say every year. I don't want to take it for granted, but the last few years, uh, with Steve and, um, um, it's kind of fun to do with Steve because we, we basically take the relentless, uh, I, I, I'm trying to keep this podcast clean, uh, uh, fecal matter gifting that we do to each other and we do it in front of an audience and um, people kind of like it and uh, and it's fun to do um, and it's funny because it's true and then I did the Noah Rothman podcast from down there and I did Dispatch Live Tuesday night 
watched the State of the Union, did the Wednesday G-File from there, and then got on a plane, came back, picked up my car, which I had left at Union Station for uh, to do CNN. And I'm sorry, yeah, to do CNN, to take the train to New York. And then um, I went to, I went home, saw the girls. Girls were very excited to see me. I, by which, by girls, I mean the quadrupeds. Uh, my bipedal women folk are all in Utah um, for a family gathering. And then I turned around, I showered, turned around, and went back to CNN to do a CNN hit. And uh, and here we are. And, you know, the amazing thing is it just occurs to me now that probably nobody really cares about any of that. But it was it was kind of good to get out and about. And it was a little, <laughs> a little funny. So, like, uh, one of the people, I'm going to try to keep all of this fairly anonymized, um, I'm going to do the verbal equivalent of an ExpressVPN, what ExpressVPN does for you, um, particularly if you use co- promo code REMNANT, um, and anonymize the people I'm talking about here. But they'll know. Um, I was talking to uh, one of the people who I see every year at this thing who happens to live in D.C. This person is a very close listener of the REMNANT and Dispatch podcasts and had all of these uh, interesting guesses, sometimes very close to the mark, about schools I had tried to anonymize, uh, people, reasons I was in Portland, Oregon, all this kind of stuff. And uh, it was just a, it was probably a healthy reminder of um, that, that I, if I don't want the world to know something, I probably shouldn't talk about it at all on this podcast <laughs> um, or write about it. You know, cause I, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the auditory version of the same problem I have with the G file, which is that, um, I've trained myself psychologically to see that as a, a note I put in a bottle and throw it out on the ocean and never think I'm going to run into anybody who ever reads it. It's just, it's just sort of, I know that's not true from lots of experience, but that's how I, that's the emotional state I'm in when I write the thing for the most part. And so it always freaks me out when I meet people in the real world who like, particularly when they ask me stuff about my personal life that I completely forgot I had put in the G file or in this podcast and, you know. So like people ask me how Cosmo's trip to the vet or Zoe's trip to the vet was, or is Pippa's limp better? Um, you know, um, how, how did things go with the mean dogs in the park this morning? I mean, like, it's just, it's kind of weird. Um, because I kind of get out of that mental mode when I do, um, when I'm out in, in the real world. Um, and I'm always, so I, like I bumped into a guy who was here from Tennessee doing some education stuff. Uh, and he was in the union station yesterday and he was like, are you Jonah Goldberg? And he just started talking to me and I was like, I, I, when I went into the Trump era stuff, I reconciled myself. Um, it wasn't hard to do because I never cared about it that much with the fact that I was going to lose a lot of fans and that kind of stuff would happen a lot less often. And um, also when I left Fox, I assumed there was that kind of stuff was going to happen a lot less often, which is fine with me. I know lots of people who live for that stuff. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it's kind of a nice surprise every now and then when someone comes up and says, you know, thanks for what you're doing and all that. I did this, uh, Jake Tapper does this, uh, thing for charity. It's great. Um, and he gets all these people to volunteer various things, you know, messages from the girls from the office or whatever. And, uh, every year he asked me if I'd give a half hour to, for a zoom call to talk about, you know, writing or whatever. And, 
Um, I've done it, I think three, no, two times. And this year I did it. And this very nice guy from, I can say California without outing him, basically just did it to say thanks for the dispatch and for, you know, making him feel like he wasn't crazy when it seemed like the entire world was going crazy. I turn on the do not disturb thing so you don't hear those beeps and pings. And that was, that was really, it was nice. I'll just put it that way. I don't want to get all mushy on you guys, but it was very nice. Um, I suppose I should talk about something real and maybe, maybe Adam will just decide to have cut all of this throat clearing as I um, wait for the ca- caffeine to kick in uh, this early Friday morning. So I was, I listened to a lot of podcast and radio stuff while I'm, I'm traveling around, walking through airports, waiting for planes and that kind of thing. As longtime listeners of this podcast know, I really don't like the daily from the New York times. I, sometimes it's useful. Sometimes it's good product. It's well-produced. Um, when they have like Maggie Haberman on or, or some other reporter, you know, Mark Mazzetti, a uh, former intern of mine, um, when they have people on talking, explaining, you know, breaking events in the news, it's useful for like, you know, uh, information gathering, but the, the framing of the show, the Michael Barbaro's constipated way of, of hosting it, um, and, and his active listening, um, where every now and then it's almost, I, I almost think that they have sort of like a sound effect board, you know, sort of like, a the audience laugh track or the weird sound, you know, like the old lost in space only had one sound effect for like the first season. So every time someone disappeared, reappeared, was destroyed by a laser, whatever, it was always the same sound or something like that. Um, I think that they actually have like a soundboard where every now and then, if they want to emphasize that something, the reporter he's interviewing said, you know, let people know that it's important. Um, they just drop in him going, "Mm." um, and, you know, it's this sort of this weird stifled um, groan. It just, it drives me crazy. Um, and I know I've said this before, but it's one of my obsessions. So anyway, uh, I don't listen to it all that often if I don't think I, it's a topic I, I could get something useful out of either um, informationally or sort of sociologically. Like, okay, how is the Times going to frame this kind of thing? Um, but they had a piece yesterday, they had a, a show episode yesterday about the, um, about why San Francisco is suffering more than almost every other major city in America. And, you know, I'm sort of on this plight of cities stuff. The Portland thing is really interesting to me, as you know. And so I figured, okay, this will be interesting or useful. And I listened to it and it was infer- interesting and useful. The angle that they were pressing was v- valuable. It was all about how you know, San Francisco wasn't originally a tech city. It became a tech city. I mean, Silicon Valley is like 40 miles away. It was basically like companies like Yelp that came in, that made downtown kind of vibrant. Lots of young workforce. A lot of other companies came in. Twitter came in. All these other companies. It made the downtown um, kind of thrive. And then in their telling, the pandemic hit. And people start, and the, the, the moneyed people started all doing remote work. And the poor people in the city all had to commute out to suburbs rather than the old way where it was like poor people or middle-class people in the city stayed in the city and the people from the suburbs came into it. And and I'm, I'm giving it short shrift. It was, again, it was interesting. That angle was interesting, but they made it sound, I mean, both an emphasis, both 
not just an emphasis, but sort of by omission and by commission, editorially, they made it sound that like San Francisco was pretty much doing okay, except for how, you know, expensive housing market um, prior to the pandemic and that the city is, is, has been hollowed out because changing habits of work um, and really nothing else. Um, they gave a little nod to homelessness as being caused by um, uh, high housing pr prices, which is very simplistic. Um, and and they, I don't think they even mentioned the word crime. Um, if they did, it was it was perfunctory. Um, same thing with you know drug and mental health issues and homelessness. You know, and and the way that homelessness is a problem for other people, right? I mean, I get pointing out how homelessness is a problem for the homeless, but, um, you know, and, but the, it was just such a strange just so story that just left out the fact that, you know, San Francisco has been suffering from all sorts of urban pathologies and dysfunctions and bad public policies, um, starting with, you know, law enforcement and crime stuff for a long time. And I totally, if, if their argument was, if they had made their argument that, you know, the pandemic made all of these trends worse or they added new problems on top of these old trends, it'd be totally fine. And I don't think they would have had to have changed more than a couple hundred words of narration. But instead, they want to make it sound like, um, uh, or they want to like leave the impression with the audience that San Francisco's problems were all because of, you know, this systemic problem with late capitalism, blah, 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 blah. And it's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. And I just... I don't know who they think they're fooling because the listenership of that thing is very urban. Um, I mean, I, I, I think maybe the people who are, they're fooling are the people who want to be fooled. Um, it's kind of like, reminds me of this morning. I was listening to NPR, which I do not as much as I used to, but I still do quite often. It sort of, I, you don't need to know about my listening habits. They had this piece, typical sort of NPR piece about this guy, who got a grant from a foundation of a million dollars and he's a multi-platform musician and artist who cares and you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was, it was, it was almost like you could have, it was almost like an onion parody of what an NPR piece was going to be about. And, but they took it very seriously as they often do. And, um, and apparently this guy who I have no reason to believe is anything other than sincere and decent and, and all that clearly you know, very progressive in all sorts of ways. He's obsessed with the problems of mass incarceration and he's going to do a um, big multi-platform format. I don't know, you know, uh, um, art ongoing art project with singing and I don't know, puppets. I, I, I don't know. I, I it was, whatever he's going to do this long form project on um, violence in America. And he's explaining, you know, what he means by violence. He says, I, you know, I mean it by the, in the broadest terms. I mean it in terms of, you know, police brutality, mass incarceration, or even just poverty. It's like, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a form of violence in this country. That's kind of worth mentioning if you have a problem with violence and it's called criminal violence. And, uh, you know, the contrary to the impression some people may want you to have more African-American people, more people of color, more poor people by, I, I, I can't even imagine what the orders of magnitude are, 
but by a very wide margin, um, are victimized by violence from crime um, than they are by by law enforcement or prison guards or anybody else. And in fact, most of the people in prison, um, at least last time I looked at these numbers, A, belong there, <laughs> and B, are not nonviolent. Now, that doesn't mean that prisons have to be terrible. It doesn't mean that prisoners necessarily always have to be in there as long as they are. I, you know, I don't want to, there are, there are cross-cutting arguments all over the place. But this idea that mass incarceration sweeps up, you know, all of these nonviolent drug offenders and all of these sorts of things is one of these myths um, that really sort of sustains a lot of the oxygen or gives a lot of oxygen to this, um, notion that we have that the biggest problem we have when it comes to criminal justice issues is how many people we have in jail. When I would simply argue that the biggest problem we have with criminal justice issues is how many people deserve to go to jail. If people stopped committing crimes tomorrow, uh, the prison populations would decrease, would start decreasing pretty rapidly. Again, I'm not trying to justify police brutality. I'm not saying that we need more draconian police state or any of that kind of stuff. I'm just simply saying it's just a simple fact that crime is part of the equation, that one of the reasons why cops abuse their power is because they work in an environment where they're in danger all the time because they're trying to fight crime. And there's just something so unbelievably immoral, I want to say, you know, about immediately turning the people who commit violent crimes into the victims and completely forgetting their actual victims. And that's how the public debate in this country largely works. And you have, you know, you have all these prosecutors who just have a position of they just don't want to put people in jail anymore. They don't want to prosecute crimes. We hear all this crap about how terrible gun violence is. And gun violence is terrible. Um, so I shouldn't have called it a crap. Uh, but uh, we hear that all of the time. But we almost never hear about how bad the criminals who commit gun violence are. All right. So anyway, uh, I'll I'll stop with that. Oh, so, <laughs> you know, I try to avoid excessive media bias talk, media criticisms talk kind of thing. But a um, couple things. So one, um, there's this company called NewsGuard. I don't know if you have heard of it. It was... Founded or co-founded, I'm not sure, by Steve Brill. Uh, full disclosure, I used to be a, a media critic from the right for his uh, short-lived, glossy magazine, Brill's Content. This is a long time ago. And um, every time I see him, get a long time with the guy. I think he's very smart. I think he's got interesting priors and um, whatnot. But he's, you know, he's a smart guy. Uh I could have a longer conversation about Steve Brill, but there's no point in it. Um, also, a former intern of mine uh, now works at uh, NewsGuard. And so what NewsGuard is, as far as I can tell, is basically it's sort of like a B2B media criticism site where it will, I mean, media criticism site is probably wrong. It's a media rating site. And you can go look it up. They, they, uh, they tell businesses whether... I suspect that the 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 it's a for subscription it's a, a, subs, a subscription only kind of product, and I suspect that the businesses that subscribe to it are mostly sort of in advertising or government affairs, and they want to know like 
what kind of brand they're associating with if they advertise on it or if they let their people speak on it. Or maybe there's more to the business model. I don't know. Um, and uh, I don't know how successful it is. They, they, they pay well from what I understand. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I got this email this week. Uh, guy sent it to me because it was from one of the accounts I don't check regularly. And um, uh, basically asking me in this very, from this uh, person I've never met before, in this sort of pushy kind of assertive, I have every right to ask these questions kind of tone that you get from a lot of journalists sometimes, but certainly the, the, the there's a, there's a certain like loaded kind of gotcha kind of feel to it and um, demanding to know why it is in the show descriptions of the remnant um, on the various podcast platforms, nor in the lead into the show, do I notify listeners that I'm a conservative and that a lot of the guests on this show are conservative. Uh, and let me see, I'll read, you know, here's the question. Why does the podcast description on podcast platforms lack the disclosure that the show primarily shares a conservative viewpoint or that Mr. Goldberg is conservative? And um, I'll read you my response. Oh, she also asked if the, if the remnant was owned by the dispatch. So I'll just read you what I wrote for the most part. To answer your second question first, the remnant was originally a national review podcast. We purchased the name and the rights to it for a nominal fee from NR when we launched the dispatch. It is now a dispatch product. As for this question, why does the podcast description on podcast platforms lack the disclosure that the show primarily shares a conservative viewpoint or that Mr. Goldberg is conservative? Um, and this is back to me saying, I have to say I have a lot of responses to this question and not all of them particularly charitable, but I'm sure you're just doing your job. Which is why I would love to know if you've asked Ezra Klein, why Ezra Klein doesn't identify himself as a liberal in his podcast description. Or for that matter, Keith Olbermann or Rachel Maddow or Kara Switcher or any of the various podcasts from NPR. As The Remnant is a podcast hosted by me and launched on National Review and is currently hosted by a center-right publication I co-founded, it never occurred to me that I needed to quote-unquote warn people that conservative content may lay ahead. I trust in the fact that my listeners are relatively well-informed and can put two and two together. Moreover, as I note nearly every week, the very title of the show, The Remnant, is a reference to Albert J. Knox's essay, Isaiah Job, about, well, The Remnant. I'm a pre-Trump conservative, as many people know, and as one, I often find I can have more meaningful conversations with liberals who care about facts and civility than many populists on my quote-unquote side. Indeed, I carry no water for the GOP. Regardless, I don't want to overread your question, but I find the insinuation, perhaps unintended, that there is something dishonest or unethical about not providing a quote-unquote conservative content warning to be really quite bizarre. And in fact, and if in fact you don't ask this question of the countless prominent podcasts of a liberal bent hosted by liberals, and often far more partisan than me and mine, that may tell you something about NewsGuard's own ideological blinders it would certainly tell me something about them. So to answer your question more directly, I don't have a good answer for why my podcast doesn't notify people. I'm a conservative because I don't think it's a good question. And frankly, it never occurred to me that it might be necessary. Best, Jonah Goldberg. And then this person responds in a follow-up email. 
Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. In NewsGuard's view, when a show has a particular political leaning, it should be disclosed in the podcast written description or an audio introducing the podcast. For example, the podcast, The Steve Deese Show, meets our standard because its description on podcast platforms states principled conservatism with a snarky twist served up daily. We have evaluated podcasts with liberal and conservative perspectives and applied the same five unbiased journalistic criteria to each show. People can view our written descriptions of our podcast rating and determine for themselves what criteria they care about. And then she gives me this point system, you know, for... Uh, you know, how they rate it and these various things. And then I um, responded, uh, thanks, I'll discuss this on the next podcast, but meeting your criteria is not something I feel overly compelled to do. Steve Deese's podcast labels itself conservatives out of marking concerns that I do not share. I think you're mistaken to confuse that with meeting some higher journalistic standards. If the remnant suffers in NewsGuard's estimation, that is a price I will have to pay. So anyway, I just thought it was, I don't know, I thought it was funny. And then, so this, this whole exchange had happened two days ago or something like that. And then yesterday in the car, I'm listening to the, the McCarthy Report, the Andy McCarthy podcast at NR, where Rich Lowry moder- you know, interviews uh, Andy about various legal and national security stuff. It turns out that, I mean, he, Rich did not reveal it, right? So this is not, Rich isn't doing what I did here. But he had some fun with the fact that somebody, and I just can't think it's another outlet, but uh, somebody reached out to them and said, we've noticed that you guys are, that your podcast, this podcast is, uh, has a conservative bent um, to it. And yet you don't tell people that you're conservative. And Rich sort of had the, it sounds like Rich and, Andy had the same reaction I had, which is, yeah, <laughs> so we're a conservative. Um, and, uh, uh, and thought it was funny too. So I have no idea if people outside the rarefied world of, of this stuff um, find any of this interesting or amusing, but I just think it's sort of hilarious that um, NewsGuard is spending considerable time. And like, I get it. Dispatch is not a household name the way National Review is, but the idea that like, National Review, you know, lest some liberal stumble into a podcast um, like a babe in the woods, not knowing anything about American journalism, American life, and listen to five minutes of a National Review podcast between the editor-at-large of National Review and its chief legal guy um, and discover that these two people are conservative. Um, you know, got to give them a trigger warning for that. Although I got to say, this is a thing that people believe in. Like, when I was doing a lot of NPR and I would criticize Trump but defend conservative positions, uh, the public editor of NPR actually did a whole piece about how upset listeners were that it, I, it wasn't explained to them that I was a conservative but still didn't like Trump. Like they didn't, they couldn't reconcile the cognitive dissonance of it. Um, and it was a really fascinating sort of insight into people who really need to be have their hands held when they get exposed to things that don't confirm their pre-existing points of view about stuff. Um, so, you know, maybe I'm being too harsh. That's entirely possible. Oh, so let's, uh, so I was talking about Andy and so far I haven't actually talked about anything of substance whatsoever. The podcast 
that Andy was doing was five days old, but I felt like I needed to catch up a bit on the Hunter Biden laptop stuff. And it was pretty useful in that regard. So let's talk a little bit about that thing. I think this is like, a, again, this is one of these middle of the road positions that is going to, you know, where you can get run over by, by, by people coming on bo- from both directions. But I think the Hunter lap, Biden laptop story is a legitimate story. We now have Joe, we now, Hunter Biden is now confirmed, although he kind of apparently walked it back a little bit, but he confirmed it, um, that it, it was his laptop. Uh, there's no evidence that there was Russian disinformation on it. I think there are perfectly reasonable arguments to say that Republicans are exaggerating its importance, but um, you can only exaggerate true things. You know, the whole meaning of exaggeration is based upon a, a truth that one amplifies in some way. And so you can have an argument about how important all this is or, or how newsworthy it is, but it's newsworthy in my estimation. You know, and I, I don't honestly know if many people at the dispatch agree or disagree with me on it. I think one of the reasons why we don't focus on it too much is because lots of other people are focusing on it. And there's still a lot of stuff that we don't know yet, which is a point I should get to in a second. But um, look, you've got, look, I have sympathy for parents of addicts, kids, right? And I have sympathy for addicts, having known quite a few addicts, um, including my late brother. At the same time, you know, you can put, you can compartmentalize that empathy and sympathy with the fact that this is the president of the United States son who has, who had a laptop full of, you know, what the Russians would call compromat, right? And who was involved in all sorts of clearly shady doings, who has a special counsel investigating him. And the laptop was described by the sitting president of the United States in a debate um, as a piece of Russian disinformation. Um, not potential. If my recollection is right. He just said it was. And you can tell that Biden is sort of being defensive and want, trying to scare people away from going after his son. And again, I get that. But like his feelings are not, you know, dispositive here. Um, it is a perfectly reasonable thing to look into this thing, particularly when you start adding in not just the fact that the president has been less than honest, um, but that the that Hunter Biden had access to this place where there was classified material, that Joe Biden was vice president when there was some of the shady stuff going on vis-a-vis Ukraine. Now, again, I'm not buying into the Trump version of all that stuff. I, I think that's at best unproven and a lot of it is just conspiracy theory stuff and slander but um this is a legitimate thing for congress for the press to look into and i i think there are a lot of people in the media and a lot of democrats who get really cocky in their attitude about this um it's very similar to you know their attitude towards some of like ron DeSantis's culture war fight stuff they think the argument is stupid. They think the battle is stupid. They think the culture war stuff in general is stupid. So therefore they think it's stupid politics and it's stupid for politicians to get into it. And that's just not true. There could be no there there with Hunter Biden beyond what we already know, which is, that you know, he, <laughs> it looks like he broke the law about guns. He looks a lot, you know, he, he's a pretty sleazy, corrupt guy that he and his uncle, the president's brother were involved in getting a lot of money from China, it appears, for this Penn Biden Center and Lord knows what else. 
but it could be that it's all smoke and no fire and it doesn't lead to the president and all that kind of stuff. Thinking that this is just sort of like really stupid for Republicans to look at is really stupid. It seems to me Um, you can, you can take the Obama administrations or the Clinton campaign's view of the Benghazi hearings or of the, all the stuff about Hillary's, you know, emails, and you can agree entirely with their point of view on the substance. I don't, but you can without getting close to the fact that uh, harping on Hillary's emails and on uh, what happened in Benghazi was good politics for the Republicans. You can say the Republicans were cynical about it. You can say the Republicans were bad people for it. I wouldn't say that, but like you can, and certainly some were. I mean, I, I'm still furious at Kevin McCarthy for when he said that the chief accomplishment of the Benghazi hearings were lowering Hillary Clinton's poll numbers. I mean, that's just grotesque. Just in case people don't understand why it's grotesque, it's like all of this sanctimony was about, you know, Americans being killed in Benghazi and Obama not having an understanding of the nature of the threat from terrorism and incredible self-righteous, you know, stuff about about dead Americans and all that, a lot of which I, I agreed with. And then McCarthy just feeling comfortable talking to Hannity or whoever it was says, yeah, it was really just about Hillary's poll numbers. That's gross to me. That's really gross. Um, and it's gross whether you agreed with the, the, the righteous outrage or you agreed with McCarthy that the righteous outrage was just there for performative cynical purposes to bring down her poll numbers. There's no angle at which you can't find that gross. And so this idea that like the stuff on Biden's lap on Hunter Biden's laptop, not leading to embarrassing stories and not having threads to pull on that get closer to Biden, the confidence with which you hear a lot of people talking that way, I just think is politically unwise and, 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 and intellectually unserious. Now, maybe at this point, the political calculation is, is the Republicans are so invested in the Biden laptop story that they kind of have no choice but to heap scorn on it, to war- warn off the media from paying too much attention to it. But again, I think that strategy could end up biting on them um, in the ass if, you know, all you need is like one conscience, you know, one, one conventional wisdom piercing revelation and the dynamics of this whole thing could change really quickly. And it's just, you know, on the merits, it is just inconceivable to me that the, the morning Joe crowd, the ro- eye rollers at the Hunter Biden stuff would be rolling their eyes if, if it was a Republican president. I mean, just, they, you could have all the other facts be the same and it just wouldn't be the case. And people know that. People see that. Um, and I just think it's a really terrible look and not a particularly journalistically sound look as well. All that said, I should, you know, I should point something out here. So uh, I try not to like spill a lot about my, my Twitter fights and Twitter drama on, on this podcast. Um, but so when the Hunter Biden laptop story first broke, I thought it was fairly bonkers. Not that Biden was a drug addict or a shady guy or any of that kind of stuff. I just thought the story about how Joe Biden, about how uh, <laughs> Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani got a hold of a laptop from a Delaware computer repair shop from apparently a legally blind computer repairman, and someone's going to have to explain how that works. It just seemed wildly implausible to me. And um, the fact that the New York Post 
refused uh, the, the one of the authors of the story refused to have their name on it, that this thing was shopped around to another outlets and, and rejected. The whole thing seemed wildly fishy. Again, uh, we, I don't, we don't need to relitigate the whole thing, but anyway, uh, this guy, Jim Treacher, who I thought, you know, I was friendly with going way back. Um, he was one of the pioneers of Obama ate the dog stuff. Uh, I had this tweet where I said, Right, which I responded to saying, wait a second, you believe the story about how they got the laptop and you take it at, you believe it at face value. And apparently, well, not, I shouldn't say apparently, I know that the usual, you know, sort of Trump cleanup brigade crowd has been making a big deal about that tweet for years now. I mean, like since this, since that moment, you'll find people who assert that I said all sorts of things about the Hunter Biden laptop that I never said. All sorts of things about, you know, how it was all Russian disinformation, which I did not say, based upon that one tweet. And, uh, and Jim Treacher has been sort of dining out on it. And I've, I've since admitted that it looks like the story is true. I still think that initial story about how they got the laptop, not what was on the laptop, how they got the laptop, was sketchy and was deserving of some journalistic skepticism. I mean, look, anything that Rudy Giuliani at that point in his career with all the day drinking and all the lies and Steve Bannon, you know, with all the puppy eating and sulfur was worthy of skepticism because they're both, they were both dirty tricksters back then. Right. And they're dirty tricksters now. And um, yeah, add in sort of you know, Roger Stone world and all that kind of stuff, having skepticism about this thing that a lot of journalist, journalistic outlets, including Fox and the Wall Street Journal, also owned by Rupert Murdoch, were apparently skeptical about seemed to me, seemed to me to be utterly defensible. And these guys have been dining out on this crap ever since. And so then like what, a week ago, Hunter Biden's lawyers basically admitted that it was his laptop because um, they wanted to like counter sue for someone disclosing this stuff or something like that. It's all legal nonsense. And the problem with, with trying to counter sue is that they have to, they have to claim that it actually was his and if you're claiming it was his, you can no longer say it was Russian disinformation, blah, blah, blah. And so all these people went nuts about how, aha, this proves that it really was his laptop, which is not something I ever denied. Um, and Treacher comes after me and apparently he, you know, his, his, his outrage is that I never formally apologized to him for making him sound dumb. And as I said very sincerely last week, it was not my intent to make him feel dumb. I was... I thought we were sort of friendly and like he was uh, and I was surprised that he just bought it on face value. And again, if this had been a, the son of a Republican, they wouldn't have bought it on face value. Right. I mean, like, uh, you know, a lot of people had their careers launched by not buying the memo gate stuff from Dan Rather at face value. Um, having some skepticism when you're in the heat of the final days of a campaign and everybody, particularly on Twitter is in the race um, to be wrong first, having some skepticism about a story that you want to be true um, seems utterly valid to me. And um, and apparently, so this is like the main reason why he's been sort of dunking on me for a couple of years now is that I, I, I never apologized uh, for making him feel dumb or words to that effect or making him seem dumb. And like, I have a couple of things about this. First of all, I could have sworn I'd sort of cleared the air about all this a long time ago and was annoyed by all these people still making a huge deal about something that I didn't think they should make a huge deal about in the first place. But I'm sorry, it's pretty weenie um, <laughs> to like sit there fuming for a couple of years about somebody being skeptical of your position 
on Twitter um, in the heat of a moment. And I, you know, I apologized him for what I consider to be his misreading of the thing. I stand by the original tweet. I still think, I mean, again, it turns out that it was his laptop. I still will not be surprised if it turns out that the story of how Rudy Giuliani and Bannon got it has more uh, details to come that make my tweet look better. But from what we know now, that's fine. But like, anyway, this is one of these, it's amazing how thin-skinned and whiny some people can be about this kind of thing. I mean, the number of people who in bad faith attack me every single day on Twitter that I can't even remember a week later, never mind harbor these grudges for two years about, it's, you know, it's just, it's strange to me. So anyway, I will not be talking about this again, but I just, I wanted to get it out there. I won't even get into the really dumb crap from newsbusters who have now decided that I'm the, um, the person that they need to sort of turn into um, some sort of useful foil or something. These people used to give me awards for making jokes and uh, ask me to MC things, you know, MC their annual dinner or whatever. And now because I made a joke about Fox, which they lionize all the time, they now think it's outrageous that I tell jokes when I'm on TV or on NPR. And it's really kind of sad and pathetic. And I, I really thought better of Tim Graham. Um, but, you know, such as it is, uh, more tales of losing friends. So what else is going on? Oh, so getting back to this point about just because something is like, so when I was talking about the Hunter Biden laptop being like the Benghazi hearings or Hillary's server, you can disagree on the substance, but you should still recognize when something is valuable politically. Right. And let's just be clear. Like, you know, Bernie Sanders was an idiot for saying, I'm sick and tired of hearing about Hillary's emails. Um, he just simply bought into this idea that there was no there there, that it was an illegitimate story, and it probably cost him the nomination. And the simple fact is that there was a there there. Um, in fact, I think one of the reasons why Trump is not going to get in much trouble for the classified material stuff, nor is Biden for the classified material stuff, is because the FBI screwed up so badly when it came to Hillary Clinton. And what Hillary Clinton did was really, really terrible. And by sort of letting her off with some new, you know, minted legal standard that didn't exist before, um, it makes it very difficult to go after any of these guys subsequently. Subsequently, But put that policy aside, just politically, the server was terrible for Hillary. You know, and if you hadn't had the, you know, the, the hit 10 days before the election from, what's his name, the FBI guy, she probably would have beaten Trump. Um, at least you can make a colorable argument that she would have beaten Trump. So, you know, like... You can say it was all stupid and you can believe it. You'd be wrong, but that doesn't mean the politics aren't, you know, salient and deadly. And, um, there's a sort of counter example or a sort of an analog example of this in the state of the union nonsense this week where, you know, you had Biden up there doing this, you know, all planned, you know, I mean, I mean, yeah, he did some stuff extemporaneously on the fly that was, um, that was effective and good, you know, politically um, about getting the Republicans to buy into this. We're not going to touch social security and Medicare stuff. Like the fact that all those Republicans got on their feet and cheered at saying that we're going to take seniors off the books or whatever. Biden used the phrase off the books when he meant off the table. Um, You know, you say you're taking something off the table and a negotiation means you're not going to touch that. When you say you're taking taking something off the books, um, it has to do with, you know, like shady accounting, 
or something. Um, but anyway, his intent was, his meaning was clear that we're not going to touch um, Social Security and Medicare. Uh, and all the Republicans cheered and they all bought into this um, idea that you can fix our long-term um, debt and deficit and entitlement problems without touching Medicare and Social Security benefits. And um, it's nonsense. Like this is someplace where, you know, like everyone recognizes the good politics, but the policy around this good politics is terrible. Um, you know, and I don't want to go all Brian Riedel on you guys, but like the, the idea that somehow if you just tax people who make over $400,000 a year a little bit more, or, or as he put it the other night, ask the rich to pay their fair share um, you can fix all of the, all of these uh, red ink problems. It's just nonsense. It's just, it's just not true. And this really, this is sort of the reverse of the Hunter Biden laptop point. You have an enormous number of people. I've been on TV with a few of them. I see it every morning on morning Joe uh, all this week who rightly point out how this was really good politics for Biden while completely missing the fact that this is bad policy for the country. And um, like, I'm not saying we should gut Medicare or social security or, or, or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, like the position of reforming how we do entitlements isn't um, as Biden puts it, you know, this dream of cutting Medicare and social security, it's a way you save Medicare and social security. You know, if, 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 if they're unsustainable, figuring out a way to make them sustainable, um, isn't anti uh, the entitlement. It is a way to preserve the entitlement. And look, I have nothing but schadenfreude for watching uh, Rick Scott twist in the wind in all of this stuff. Uh, Cause he brought it on himself. Um, he, you know, he, he incurred the wrath of Mitch McConnell um, all because he thought he could be, you know, either speaker or set this up, you know, set up this weird plan that he had when he was the head of the NRSC um, to run for president, whatever the reason he put himself in this position, you know, the idea that we're going to sunset Medicare and social security every five years and reauthorize it was, uh, it was one of those things that people in a boardroom think sounds really smart, but don't understand that like what sounds might sound smart in a boardroom doesn't necessarily translate into politics very well. And uh, uh, so he, uh, this is not a defense of him, but like on the policy stuff, he is closer to right than all of the Democrats or all the Republicans standing up and cheering Joe Biden's, we're not going to touch this stuff thing. And it is amazing to me how to watch, you, you watch people who like, lo who because they fall in love with the, when they're, particularly when it's their team, um, does something that's smart politics they um, get confused and also, also seem to think that it is smart policy. And it's just not the case. What else to um, talk about? Uh, balloon. I finally feel like I should talk about the balloon. Balloon. First of all, um, I think I should point out, I didn't have a chance to listen to all of the commentary podcasts last week. Um, but at the end of the week before pod began the commentary podcast saying how he was 
he had insomnia. He couldn't sleep because there was this line from, well, I should back up. He says, he says, he took like the first five minutes of the episode to say, look, this is not going to make any sense to all but a handful of people who grew up in the seventies and eighties and in New York city watching WPIX, um, which was channel 11 when I was growing up. And, um, he said they ran a commercial all the time for the TV show F Troop, which ran constantly in reruns on Channel 11. I think it stopped being, I think it, when it was a broadcast show, uh, first run show, I think it was before I was born, but I've seen every F Troop. I mean, it's been a while, but I, I loved F Troop. Um, and, um, Anyway, he was saying how there was a commercial promoting, you know, watch F Troop tonight where they ran over and over again. And this is what he said. There was an episode of where Larry Storch, who played Corporal Agarn on F Troop, also played a Russian balloonist. And Larry Storch said, the Russian balloonist Storch said with a thick Russian accent, it is balloon. And I want to be utterly fair to John Pod. The second he said this, it all rang bells for me. I could see it in my head. I could, I started saying it is balloon too. The reason he had insomnia is he just kept saying it is balloon all night long. Um, and so, uh, he texted me while I was, I believe while I was recording this podcast last week and said, Oh, you got to listen to the first five minutes of the commentary podcast. So on my drive to the scar shop, after I finished recording, I'm listening to it. And he says this thing about Larry, Russian Larry Storch saying it is balloon. And I, um, I go search YouTube for, and I'm like, aha, I remember that. And then I search YouTube for it is balloon. Um, thinking I'll find the, the clip of it. And it turns out pod just remembered wrong. And he incepted the wrong memory into my brain, which, you know, tells you it was a good little tiny insignificant example of the problems with recovered memory. Um, because I, when I first heard him say it, I could distinctly remember Russian corporal Agarn, slash Larry Storch saying it's his balloon. And then the second I see the video, it turns out it was the, the chief of the Hakawis, the Indian tribe, the vaguely Yiddish Indian tribe, um, in F troop who said it is balloon when he saw Russian Larry Storch in the balloon. And, um, anyway, I sent it to pod. I don't know if he's corrected the record on this. I keep meaning to ask him whether or not, uh, um, other uh, people have pointed this out to him or if I'm the only one. Um, and I also need to ask him whether or not he notifies listeners in his podcast description that he's a conservative because that is vital information. Um, anyway, but let's talk about the real balloon. Um, I, uh, um, I think this is still, this is another one of these things where I think, uh, there's still a lot we don't know and it doesn't make sense to get too far out ahead of it the way a lot of people were last week. I mean, it was just amazing how many people instantaneously became experts on um, high altitude surveillance dirigibles. Um, but, uh, um, and people think I was joking on Twitter when I said, look, it's basically just a drone with Body image issues. Yeah, okay, the body image issues thing was a joke. But it's a drone. It's a dirigible drone. It just has a different motion mode of, of locomotion. Um, 
um, or, or power. I mean, is locomotion something you can have in the air? I don't know the answer to that. Um, but, uh, it's, you know, it, it moves, it doesn't use jet fuel or propellers. It uses a balloon, but it's still, it's a drone. It's a spy drone. Um, but, uh, uh, it's not leaching our precious bodily fluids. It is not, uh, disrupting as, uh, one of those, what's that Jackwad's name? Um, Prosbiak, I saw that he was saying how it was it was interfering with people's cell service over its flight path. Um, I think that guy Comer, the chairman of the Biden laptop committee, um, um, was saying how it was pumping stuff into the atmosphere. I can't remember. I don't want to get that wrong. But uh, someone was saying that. Anyway, uh, I think it is entirely possible that this was a that, that the fact that we saw it was a screw up by China because apparently these things have been riding much higher in the atmosphere and we haven't noticed them. I am stunned at how badly the Biden white house handled the communications job on this, the messaging on it. You know, um, they seem to want to take every possible position on it, that it's not a big deal, that it is a big deal. They want to take pride in shooting it down, but they also want to take pride in, and waiting not to shoot it down, they let the story get leaked that this happened three times on the on Trump's watch, and then only later clarified to say, but the Trump administration didn't know about it. Um, I personally think that they could have just simply, you know, gone out in public and said, "Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know," and and said, "Don't worry, it's closely monitored, and, and we'll figure it out much earlier, much easier." But they seem to want to like have. Uh, as many possible positions as they could conceivably take. Um, and, and I am open to the possibility that the Pentagon didn't want to shoot it down because they wanted to monitor what it was transmitting and maybe like reverse spy back on China. I, I, I don't know. Um, I just, I know that I don't trust the administration at all on this the way I don't trust it on like the classified document stuff. Um, um, I know I brought this up before on here, but, like this six items thing where they say they recovered six items containing classified documents, six items could be, could be six different thumb drives or, or hard drives with tens of thousands, millions of documents on them. We don't know. Um, but we do know that like they keep screwing up the timeline on that too. But the one thing I got to say is like, again, assuming that like, since this is a declaration against their own interest, the Pentagon admitting that they let this thing happen three times without knowing about it in real time, it makes me want to be one of the bobs from Office Space and, uh, and go to NORAD and be like, what would you say you do here? Because like, um, like I, I take a backseat to almost no one about the importance of, of tracking Santa's flight path every Christmas Eve. Um, but Nora, NORAD has another job, which is to make sure that like really terrible things from our enemies don't enter our, our airspace without us knowing it. And, um, you know, I don't know if that, I, I assume you couldn't be parked that high up and do an EMP attack, but could you be parked that high up and then sort of uh, release the balloon and drop from right over the center of the country with an EMP and, and, and ignite it when you're much closer? I don't know, but I do know that like, if that's possible, we should be able to track these things 
um, in real time and notice them. And so like, I think that's scandalous that this has been going on. Um, and again, I don't, I, I honestly think this could be a mistake by, by China, um, us seeing it, right. Not, um, them doing it because clearly they've been doing this for a while. Um, but once we saw it, we had to, you know, take action because you just, you know, you can do all sorts of things when they're in secret, but then once they become public nation states, like people have to sort of save face. Um, and, um, and have to, have to assert our rights, um, and our, you know, and enforce our sovereignty and all that kind of stuff. So like, you know, the second, second people in Montana saw it, we had to do something real about it. And, um, but I just think this is like incredibly embarrassing for the country. Um, incredibly embarrassing, strong. I think it's embarrassing for the country. I think it's embarrassing for the administration, um, I thought the way Biden treated China and the balloon in general, or China in general and the balloon in particular in the State of the Union was kind of pathetic given what a big story it was for the preceding week. Um, I think taking excessive pride in the fact that the F-22 thing, the F-22s, you know, took it out um, is kind of sad. Um, um, I mean, although I, gotta, I was thinking last night about this, imagine the pressure on the pilot. You know, talk about like, like, you know how you always kind of feel sorry for the the field goal kicker in a football game when it's a really easy field goal. And, but if they miss it, the game, they lose the game, you know, just the incredible pressure not to screw up is huge. It's like free throw pressure. If the pilot had missed the balloon, it would have been the end of his career and probably of his commanding officers. Um, I also just, I wonder why we don't have, and we should, if we don't, we should, we should have, drones that can force the thing to the ground so that we get it intact. Um, you know, I don't know if it's by a pinprick popping of the balloon part or just putting a bunch of drones on it and pushing down. Um, but we should be able to capture that kind of thing intact um, rather than like either having to drop it over, over, over land and risking lives and fire and damage and all that kind of stuff or over water. Um, like, I know you can't send a helicopter that high up, um, but we should be able to do something that makes it more of a controlled force down. Um, but, you know, what do I know about this stuff? So with that, I think we're done. Um, I feel like I didn't talk about anything of importance or substance um, or anything particularly fun. This feels like a solidly acceptable but little more edition of the solo podcast you know what the, you know what the problem is there was no rank eggheadery no hayek no schumpeter um and i think that's a problem and if you did the summer honors program you'd know about hayek and schumpeter but that's not that's neither here nor there um so maybe next week we'll do um deeper rank eggheadery although you should know i have a vacation in an undisclosed location coming up in the middle of February and um, I haven't figured out podcast schedule uh, to deal with those challenges. Um, but uh, um, we'll figure it out and maybe we'll have some guest hosts as well. So with all that said and done, I'll see you next time.